are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this evening we turn to Leviticus one final time. Leviticus, we are in chapter 27, the final chapter of this great book. I pray you've found it edifying and encouraging. When I first announced that I was going to be preaching through this book, I didn't hear much response. And it took a couple weeks in where people started saying, that's better than I expected it to be. And I pray as we've come to the end, you have indeed found it rich and edifying as we conclude the book this evening. It's all about approaching a holy God and communing with the holy God. How is that possible for sinful people? How is it possible for people like you and for me to come to a holy God? We've seen that answered throughout the book and we come today to its conclusion in chapter 27. So let's now read this evening from Leviticus chapter 27. We'll read verses uh, 1 through 15, and then we'll jump to the final verse, verse 34, and read that as well. Hear now the word of the Lord, Leviticus 27. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is a female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. If the person is from five years old up to 20 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 20 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. If the person is from a month old up to five years old, the valuation shall be for a male five shekels of silver and for a female, the valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if the person is 60 years old or over, then the valuation for a male shall be 15 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, Then he shall be made to stand before the priest, and the priest shall value him. The priest shall value him according to what the vower can afford. If the vow is an animal that may be offered as an offering to the Lord, all of it that he gives to the Lord is holy. He shall not exchange it or make a substitute for it, good or bad, or bad for good for bad, or bad for good. And if he does, in fact, substitute one animal for another, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. And if it is any unclean animal that may not be offered as an offering to the Lord, then he shall stand the animal before the priest and the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall be. But if he wishes to redeem it, he shall add a fifth to the valuation. When a man dedicates his house as a holy gift to the Lord, the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. And if the donor wishes to redeem his house, he shall add a fifth to the valuation price and it shall be his. We'll move down to verse 34. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In 1505, Martin Luther was in Erfurt, Germany, and he had just completed his law degree. He was wrapping up some other studies as well when he decided to take a home, take a trip back home to Mansfield, nearly 60 miles away. On his journey, he was overtaken by a strong thunderstorm. It terrified him. He sought cover from, uh, from all of the rain and the, and the wind and the lightning that nearly struck him. He sought cover under a tree. 
And he cried out to the only religious figure he knew at that time, Christ's grandmother, the mother of Mary. Luther cried out, help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. Luther was delivered from that storm, and when he returned back to Erfurt, he gave away all of his law books, and he went and joined a monastery. He was faithful to that vow that he so rashly uttered that day in the storm. Even if he did make it to one that was unable to fulfill it, St. Anne, he still fulfilled the vow that he had promised ultimately to God. Leviticus 27 addresses vows similar to that which Martin Luther made. How Israelites can go about fulfilling vows that they make to God. Hopefully they make them more carefully, but they are called to fulfill them in accordance with Leviticus 27. Now I will say commentators often are scratching their heads why this is placed here in Leviticus. Why not someplace else? Why did Leviticus not end with the blessings and the curses of chapter 26? That's a very natural place to conclude. Well, we'll address this in time, but it is, according to God's word, the conclusion of the book. We see, as as we've seen over and over through this book, we see confirmed again for us that embracing Christ as he has foreshadowed and offered in the gospel of Leviticus leads us to a deep thankfulness. We're going to unpack these these verses and what's going on in the bigger context here by addressing three questions this evening. Addressing three questions. First, what is a vow? Second, why make a vow? Then third, why conclude Leviticus with vows? So let's first think about what is a vow? As we come into chapter 27, it does presuppose we know a lot about Israelite culture, ancient Near East culture, and vows that were made. A vow basically is a voluntary promise made to God to do something for God. It's a promise voluntarily made to God to do something for him. Now, while the making of the vow itself doesn't seem to have particular religious significance in the Bible, the fulfillment of your vow does. Fulfilling a vow is of utmost importance. importance. It is extremely important that when you make a vow, this promise that it is fulfilled. Failure to fulfill a vow is a very serious violation of God's law. It's a serious offense against God himself. And so it's better to not make a vow in the first place than to make one and not fulfill it. Now, a vow is technically different from an oath. And our Westminster Confession actually teases this out and helps us understand the difference between a vow, as we see in Scripture, and oaths in Scripture. While a vow is a promise to God to do something for him, an oath is a promise we make to another person in the presence of God. So an oath is something done as a part of religious worship. It's either a promise to somebody else or a promise to tell the truth. So you go to court, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. God is being invoked as a witness to my promise to tell the truth. Or we're used to oaths being taken in wedding ceremonies. We often call them vows, but they're really theologically oaths. I'm making a promise to somebody else in the presence of God. Or church membership questions are answered as oaths in the presence of God that I will indeed be faithful to these questions. Ordination questions are oaths. So all these oaths are promises to others while God is present. These vows are different slightly, 
They're promises to God. They're equal importance, but the difference is who am I promising to? And with these vows, we're making a promise to God. This distinction is out of use today, and that's fine to talk about marriage vows. But biblically, we can talk about marriage oaths and vows we make to God. Now, there's two different fundamental kinds of vows. The first one is a conditional vow. A vow that should X happen, I will then do Y. An example of this is Hannah's vow in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. It's written, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So Hannah says, if you give me a child, I will give him to you for service to you all the days of his life. If X happens, then Y. And indeed, the Lord did bless Hannah with the child and she named him Samuel and he was committed to the service of the Lord all the days of his life. Another kind of conditional vow is say, maybe your child is sick in in grave illness and you say, Lord, if you deliver my son, my child, then I'll make a special sacrifice for you and I'll make a contribution of two rams to the temple. Something of that sort, where if the Lord would deliver, then you will do these things you've promised. That was a typical vow of ancient Israel. These conditional vows, if this happens, then I will do this. If the Lord does X, then I will do Y. The other kind of vow is unconditional unconditional. It's just a statement that I will do something for God. Uh, An example of this is that Nazarite vow that you may remember from Numbers 6. When somebody wants to commit themselves to the Lord, the Lord set up this Nazarite vow where people can dedicate themselves to God's service for a time, where for a time they will make a vow, a promise to not consume any alcohol, to not cut their hair, to not touch any dead body, to set themselves apart for service to the Lord. An unconditional vow. They don't do that if something happens. They do it then and there. Take a vow to commit themselves to the Lord. So there's conditional and unconditional vows. And now Leviticus 27 enters in to help people understand values assigned with different things that may be vowed or promised to the Lord. So let's look at these major sections here. Verses 1 through 8 speaks of persons. A vow regarding the life of a person was to be converted into financial payment. And it should be noted that the financial payments listed here were enormous sums, the sums that normal people probably could not pay. And yes, the amount varies by age and gender, but it's not to say people have inherently different values based on their age or gender, but it's to say it's generally trying to assign a production value to people. People were, were con- this, this valuation said, if you're in the prime of life and a male, we consider you to be more productive than if you're younger or older or a female. And so this valuation is tied to production, not to inherent or intrinsic value. So if, someone vow- if somebody uh, uh, makes an, a vow to commit their child to God, they can pay this amount instead of turning their child to the temple where this child would serve in the temple all the days of their life. So presumably Hannah could have paid this amount for her son because she vowed him to God's service, but maybe she didn't have the funds. We don't know why she did not. But any vow concerning persons, you pay this amount. 
The second section is verses 9 through 13, and it has to do with animals. An animal vowed to the Lord would either be a clean animal, one that would be sacrificed on the altar, or an unclean animal. You could vow an unclean animal and give it to the Levites, who would use them uh, for working in the temple, working in the, the Levite communities, and they would use them for their personal use. So you could uh, vow these animals to the Lord, or if the vower decided after the fact, after making the vow that they did not want to give up the animal, they could pay a financial sum instead. And that financial sum is the value of the animal plus, plus 20%, as we see in verse 13. So this additional fifth would allow you to redeem that animal back. You were still fulfilling your vow. It was still considered, you were still considered faithful to your vow by giving this sum to the temple, but you could redeem that particular animal back with an additional, additional 20%. We go through verses 14 and 15. It speaks of houses, the same thing. You could vow your house to the Lord, but you could redeem it back for an additional 20%. Uh, verses 16 through 23, it's a very complicated system for land. And you remember uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at the year of Jubilee and land would revert back to its original owner, the year of Jubilee. And so it made calculating the costs and the price associated with land very complicated. The houses, verses 14 and 15, were exempt from the year of Jubilee because houses inside the city, townhomes, did not revert back to original ownership. So houses were easier to deal with than the land. And so that's why the land section is quite lengthy. We go to verses 26 through 29. There's special rules about the firstborn animals and devoted things. And verses 30 through 33 turns to tithes, the requirement to tithe. And you can't vow a tithe, the first fruits of the field or of your animals. You can't vow to give God a tithe because that's already what Israel was called to give to God. But they could redeem their tithe with, again, that additional 20%. So if you really needed your tomato crop from the year, you could buy that back by paying 120% of the value of that crop. So here we have the monetary assignments to different vows, but it raises the question, why make vows in the first place? They're voluntary. Nobody's making you make a vow. Why would you do it in the first place? Well, first, it's not a tool for bartering with God. I think it's easy for us to look at this and say, well, are you just trying to manipulate God? No, this is not some kind of sick pagan way of trying to persuade or bargain with or trying to exercise authority over God. You're not buying prosperity in this life or deliverance from a trial. Now, certainly some abused the vow. And I think we could say Luther probably did when he was stuck in that, that storm. Some did abuse it, and maybe some thought they were bartering with God, trying to manipulate him. And there's no blessing from that, because God is not a cosmic vending machine. You give him a few things, and he'll give you what you want in return. This was not about bartering with God in any way, shape, or form. The vow, fundamentally, is a demonstration of thankfulness. The vow, fundamentally, is a demonstration of gratitude to God. Let's think of it this way. Let's think of the unconditional vow, right? Why would, you give an un, why would you make an unconditional vow? Because you're motivated by gratitude. You see what God has done for you. You understand his grace and his mercy. And I feel gratitude in the moment. Therefore, I'm going to vow to do these things for God in response to the grace he's shown me. But even think of the, un, of the conditional vow. 
the conditional vow. Even if I say, Lord, if you deliver me from this situation, then I will give this to you. That is not about bartering with God. It's being in the middle of the storm and realizing how wonderful of a thing it would be for God to deliver you, how gracious of a provision it would be. And when you're there under the sword, when you're there in the middle of the trial, then at that point, you understand what kind of gratitude would be appropriate on the back end. When you're there in the middle of the storm, you realize how gracious God's provision would be. And it's there in the middle of the storm, you make the conditional vow, oh Lord, if you deliver me, my gratefulness will overflow in these ways. It's motivated by gratitude that I will have when the Lord acts. Because as I said, when you're in the middle of that trial, you have a better sense of what kind of gratefulness comports with the deliverance that you desire. And so the vows hold us accountable to gratitude. Vows hold us accountable to be thankful people. When you're in the middle of a trial, what would it look like to be thankful to be, to be delivered from that trial? You can think of that in the middle of the trial, make a vow to the Lord, and then on the back end, be faithful to fulfill it. It's always easier after the fact to, to minimize our gratitude, to minimize our thankfulness. But when you're in the middle of the storm, you know the greatness of God's grace to deliver you from such a trial as that. Following through on a vow is of utmost importance. And it makes us remember as we fulfill that vow, remember what God has done for us. It's another moment to be reminded of his provision, his grace. So why make a vow? Fundamentally, it's thankfulness. We vow because we're thankful to God. But then this question that torments the the scholars, why conclude the book with vows? Where does this come from? This seems like out of left field. After we talked about blessings and curses that would summarize a covenant document such as Leviticus, why would this be, as it were, appended to the end? Most commentators throw up their hands in confusion. But I think the answer is quite simple. It seems so reasonable to me to conclude the book in this way as an encouragement to Israel to remember what God has done for them, to live a life of gratitude. That's fundamentally what the vow is about. It's about gratitude. And so this is put at the end to say, look at what God has done. Look at this incredible book, his provision of grace and mercy, his promise to be with you, the promise that the light of the lamps are always shining upon the bread of God's people. Be thankful. Look to him to live a life of gratitude in response of all of the grace of God described in the book. You remember we began looking at Leviticus by actually looking at Exodus, the end of Exodus, this great triumphant moment for Israel as they were told how to build the tabernacle. And there at the foot of Mount Sinai, they built the tabernacle. God descended into the tabernacle with the cloud of fire, of, of, with, the, with the pillar of cloud came into the tabernacle. But what happened? Israel could not enter. The priests could not enter. Moses could not enter into the tabernacle because of God's holy presence. For fear of their life, they were a sinful people. God was here in the middle of the encampment of Israel and Israel could not come to God because of their sin. And so Leviticus is answering that question. How do a sinful people approach a holy God? And we've seen week by week as part of that answer. The five sacrifices at the beginning to atone for the sins of God's people, to purify them, the burnt offering, 
the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, all of them emphasizing different parts of the redemption of God's people needed to come into his presence. We saw God institute worship by consecrating priests who would represent God's people to him and represent him to God's, himself to God's people and priesthood. And God received the worship of his people with great joy, did they not? What a wonderful thing. Now we can offer sacrifices and come into God's temple, God's presence. But then immediately, immediately, you go from Leviticus 9 to chapter 10. 9 is the celebration and the party and the worship. In chapter 10, what happens? The sanctuary is defiled by Nadab and Abihu with illicit worship and their dead bodies. So now, the clean, now Israel needed to be cleansed. The temple needed to be cleansed or the tabernacle needed to be cleansed. And so God provides these laws of cleanliness and uncleanliness to show them how to purify, to prepare themselves to come into God's presence. Culminating in the Day of Atonement as that annual event to remind Israel of all of this, the necessity for cleansing and purging, how God's doing that in his people day by day, year by year, and how they need a sacrifice on their behalf. And all of this, of course, as we've seen over and over, all of Leviticus has, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the one who came to die for us, the once for all sacrifice for sins. These sacrifices were offered day by day, week by week, year by year, over and over. The red robe of the priest was quickly turned red with the blood of the sacrifices. Every day, blood flowing from the tabernacle and temple. All finds its fulfillment in the once for all. No longer are those sacrifices offered day by day, but it has been done now once and for all, who completely purifies us by his blood who now even intercedes for us as our high priest. Leviticus then turns, beginning in chapter 17, to talk about how to walk with God, how to walk with a holy God as a holy people, purified, set apart, and redeemed, and atoned for. What does a life walking with God look like? Looks like walking in holiness. We walk in holiness. Be holy as I am holy is the refrain of the second half of the book. We are called to be like God in holiness. To love for others. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a command here from Leviticus. God graciously sets up Sabbath reminders every seventh day to come into God's sanctuary, to forget the other work that we're doing and to rest in God's appointed sacrifice and the feasts every year reminding them of, the fat, of all of these facets of salvation, pointing them to the one, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled this all. The lamp and the bread and the tabernacle every single day, 24 hours a day, every single day of the year lit to remind Israel that that light of God's face continues to shine upon them. No matter the storm, no matter what's happening, no matter how you feel, God is with his people. And so we live in light of that objective, true reality that is ours in Christ. And a failure, as we saw last time, a failure to heed the commands of Leviticus and indeed of all the law of God is a reminder to Israel of their need for that once for all sacrifice their failure over and over. And of course, Israel did fail over and over. Leviticus in every way, shape and form points Israel to Jesus. 
So it points us to our Savior. We cannot do it. We cannot enter that holy place. We cannot come into God's presence apart from that great Savior. We've seen the shadow, but we have the source of the light. We have Christ himself. So in light of all of this, this greatest story ever, this is a microcosm of that reality. It's not just about entering a cloth tabernacle that's roaming around through the desert on the Arabian Peninsula. That's not what this is ultimately all about. This is ultimately about the ultimate things, the greatest things. Do you know the creator of heaven and earth or will you face eternity without the light of his face in judgment? Leviticus says, there is a way. God has provided it. You can never do it. You can never pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can never have enough. You can never prove yourself perfect. You can never do enough. You can never keep the law perfectly enough to enter that tabernacle. It takes Jesus Christ to bring you to the creator of heaven and earth. Over and over, Leviticus and all of God's scripture points us to this fundamental truth. This, brothers and sisters, this is what we need to know. This is what we need to hear because our lives are full of moments of, of pursuing our own goodness, of thinking I'm able to do this. Look at me, I've accomplished these things. Look at my children, aren't they so wonderful? Brothers and sisters, you cannot come to a holy God on the basis of any of this. The greatest story has been told that a sacrifice has been appointed by the God of heaven and earth that we might come to him. Indeed, he has even come to us to reconcile us to him. And of course, we all know, as we've seen over and over, I feel like I'm beating the same drum over and over, but it is the same drum of Leviticus. This is Jesus Christ for us. Jesus crucified. In him do we trust. In him do we place all of our hope. To him do we look. And it's this story, this announcement that there's a savior for sinners that leads us to that profound gratitude that Leviticus 27 brings to the surface. This is so significant for us. Not in that we, have, we value vows in the same way, not that, not that these, these technical amounts of dollars or you come to the church and your pastor values your animal, none of that any longer, thankfully. But this is to show how do I live a life of gratitude to God? The particulars are not what we do any longer, but the overarching reality that we live a life of gratefulness to God. We need to be reminded of this over and over. As the world again reminds us day by day that life is all about your pleasure, your enjoyment, and what you can get out of it. But no, it is about a gracious God who's given us his son. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So brothers, in light of all of this, I love how this book ends. It's a call to be thankful. We can't, it's, it's difficult to command us to be thankful, but what a wonderful and gracious reminder this is. And in light of this, what is the response? A grateful heart. Look what God has done. We now enter the tabernacle to commune with God. Even more than that, he now comes to us and for eternity we enter the new heavens and the new earth, that place where righteousness dwells, that place that the, that the tabernacle and the later the temple is a microcosm of the new creation that is coming. 
So be thankful. It's a joy to be grateful. And I will even go so far to say a lack of thankfulness indicates there's something not quite right inside of us. We're missing the gospel somewhere in our life. We're not applying it to this corner of our life. So if you don't sense thankfulness, let's go back to the wells of Jesus Christ and his gospel. All of the religious observances of Christian worship should be done in faith. In the same way, the, the religious observances of the Old Testament Jewish people should have been done in faith. This was not about going through the motions. This was not about just presenting the sacrifice just to do it. In the same way, we don't show up to church just to do it. This is about doing this in faith, coming to Christ, God's designed worship for us to take us more deeply into Christ week by week, every time we come by faith. So significance for us is first that, to be grateful. Be grateful that we are now in this story, the story of God redeeming a people is us as well. He's grafted in the Gentiles. All who call upon Jesus Christ have eternal life in Christ. Be grateful. And then second here is to fulfill all of your promises of gratitude. In other words, fulfill all of your vows. Yes, we can still make vows to the Lord today. That is still entirely appropriate. And so when you make them, fulfill them. I think it's possible. Ananias and Sapphira, you remember them from Acts in the early church. I think it's very possible that they made a vow that they did not fulfill. Remember, they lied to the Holy Spirit. That's a big deal. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They did not give all of the money that they received from the sale of their property to the church. They kept a portion of it back for themselves. Maybe that was a vow. Maybe not. But it sounds like lying to the Holy Spirit, that's exactly what we do when we make a vow and we do not fulfill it. We are lying to the Holy Spirit and we know how it ended for Ananias and Sapphira. It's a serious thing. So fulfill our vows. And the third thing is to give cheerfully with gratitude. All of these vows were about giving to the Lord, giving of their financial means, giving of the land or of the animals, giving of their financial provision, giving this to the Lord. Now, there's other vows that can be made as well. The Nazarite vows, for example. But most of these vows were giving something to the Lord. And it was to be done cheerfully, as we read earlier from the New Testament, to give cheerfully and with gratitude. Now, there's different views today on whether tithing your income is required or not. It was certainly required under the Old Covenant. Verses 30 through 33 talk about this. But if it's not required, though, giving to the church today is more akin to a vow. It's determining, as we, as we read earlier, determine in your heart, decide in your heart to give to God. And in essence, that's a vow you're making to the Lord. I'm going to decide in my heart to give to the Lord. It's a vow that we make. Whether we think tithing is required or not, that's a topic for another day. But what we decide to give to the Lord is a vow. And we give to him, as Paul says, cheerfully. And so we can do this because God has redeemed us, because God is faithful to preserve us, because we have Jesus Christ. We can give cheerfully with gratitude. When we began the series, I described a meme that I saw all the way back probably last December or January. 
This meme has two frames. The first one was a school bus that was creeping onto a railroad track. And in the background, you see this train coming. And on the bus, it's written, reading the Bible in a year plan. The second, the second frame is the school bus being obliterated by the train, which reads Leviticus. I think many of us might feel that way. You try to read through the Bible in a year. You come to Leviticus, hands go up. I don't know what to do. I don't understand this. Oh, brothers, I pray that we have been able to understand a tiny bit of the depth of the riches that are here in this wonderful book. Maybe if you're reading it through in a year, you don't have the time and the resources to dig down deep into it, but maybe we have a surface level understanding. So next time we go through it, you read through it, you'll understand. But oh, there's so much here. There's so much, even far more than we could speak of in a mere 20 sermons. But I pray that as we look at Leviticus, as we look at all of God's word, we see the riches of Christ, the glory of Christ for sinners, the riches of God's grace and mercy. That one who says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Leviticus shows us rest, rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Brothers, let us look to him in prayer. Oh, gracious Father, that you would give us your son on the pages of your word. We are so grateful. We pray our lives would now be lived in light of our guilt of sin, the grace that redeems us from the curse of the law, but now in gratitude, living our lives unto you. Help us to be more grateful day by day. As we know more of Christ, may we be more and more grateful. May this gratefulness allow us and propel us to serve our neighbors, to love them, to serve our community, serve our family and our friends with a selfless love that is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bless us this week for the work that lies ahead. Bless us this week for the communications and and the interactions we will have with those unbelievers and neighbors around us. May you season our words with the gospel. May we love our neighbors as a reflection of our love for you that you loved us first. We thank you for Jesus and revealing to him on the pages of even this, your book, Leviticus. In blessed name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.